0: Hi, welcome to PhD Rhapsody,
1: an honest podcast about PhD's life, where we share our stories, some experiences, and funny moments. Here we talk how PhD change our life, share our fears
2: and achievements during our scientific research. I'm Martin. I'm Wilda.
1: I'm Alpina. Welcome to this episode of PhD Rhapsody. This time we have uh, Sarah Middleton with us from Oxford University. Ooh,
3: Hello. Welcome. <laughs>
1: Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me on.
0: Oh, our pleasure. So
1: excited. Super cool that you could join uh, for this episode. Maybe, Sarah, can you give a short introduction of yourself? Ooh. okay.
4: <laughs> I always find this uh, question actually quite tricky to like introduce myself so I guess I'd, I'd give like okay I'd say my name Sarah um, and I'm a PhD candidate at Oxford University but um, I have a lot of other interests apart from being like a scientist as well so that's why I find that um, question quite difficult it's like which part of me do you want to, <laughs> to like, introduce myself <laughs> but um, yeah I can go with the basic ones I'm a PhD candidate um, in sort of plant ecology
1: Sort of my area.
0: Nice. So, what's your favorite thing to do outside academia? Since you have a lot of hobbies or a lot of side.
1: Well, like hobbies was that the question?
0: Yeah, hobbies or uh, you said you have a lot um, of stuff that you yeah have so a passion I really
4: enjoy Oh, sorry, did I just talk over
0: you? No, oh, no, no, no worries. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
4: yeah, so I really enjoy like photography. So I like taking my camera out and going for walks and taking nature photographs. Um, especially sort of like close-up macro shops as well of plants um I enjoy cooking baking recently I've started making my own homemade Nutella which has oh. been really fun to me oh, and wow. really tasty <laughs> um, so just like yeah experimenting like in the kitchen um I enjoy swimming um yeah walks that's kind of what I like doing things mm-hmm. that are kind of like quite active or like using my hands and things um,
1: yeah, I get, like, a break from...
4: Like, screen. Like, I spent so much... Yeah. Time. I think lots of, like, people think scientists, is like, you're always outside or you're doing, like, your lab stuff. But a lot of it, I don't know what percentage is in front of the computer screen. Yeah. So I like to do stuff that's, like, away from that.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: Actually, I've been uh, clicking too much because I work with 3D models. And, uh, like, the past week, I've been clicking so much with, uh, like, the computer mouse. So now, actually, my elbow is really hurting.
4: (laughs) Oh, no. You get, like, repetitive strain from clicking the mouse
0: too much. I feel like... I should probably tell the doctor, but I'm afraid he will just think, ah, oh, it's one of these gamers uh, <laughs> playing playing too much video games. But really, it's just me clicking on a, a model. Hardcore
2: scientist. I'm a scientist.
0: <laughs> but I, I just also wanted to ask, do you watch the great uh, British Bake Off? I, I was into it, and then I kind of
4: like got out of it. I don't know. I think it's like, I like to do like, cooking and that kind of stuff in a non-competitive context. So I just feel like really anxious for like all the competitors yeah. and it's like a time limit. And then they, you know, they drop the cakes or like it hasn't risen enough. <laughs> and I get really anxious watching it. <laughs> <laughs> so like, I haven't watched it for many, many series. Um, oh,
0: okay, I absolutely love it. I think it's just amazing. <laughs> like people are so skilled and they're so good at baking. It's just amazing. Mm.
4: I do like watching, I think it's like sometimes on Instagram or something, just like cake decorating. Oh, yeah. It's really relaxing to watch people like icing cakes and things.
0: (laughs) They make it look so easy. And then it's actually really, really hard.
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Oh, I never really got into that. But But I was wondering, like, how and when did you decide to do a PhD in uh, ecology? Did you always know that you wanted to go for an academic career? Or is that something that evolved
4: I would say um yes yeah, so I guess it's more like evolved um so I've always had like an interest in sort of science and like nature and just general outdoors and I've always been like really curious and stuff but um I never really thought about academia it was more like pursuing like knowledge <laughs> kind of in that sense like I want to know more I want to know how this works and that kind of stuff so that's kind of how my journey has been um and yeah because I left school with not very good grades so I was like oh I'm not sure if I can go to university with the grades that I have but I was like I'm still really interested in science so then I just I I took a slightly longer route to get to where I am Mm
3: -hmm. (laughs)
4: and like worked in between and did various jobs um so yeah my background is in environmental sciences um so that was very broad kind of theme so we studied like oceanography, soil science, a little bit of geology, um, Mm -hmm. ecology, conservation, human geography, all that kind of, anything kind of related to the environment, it's really like humans. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, yeah, for my master's, it was um, sort of similar, but it was more related to invasion biology, mostly plants. Um, And then, so yeah, sorry, in my, I guess my sort of love of like, plants and things came sort of in between um well last year of university when I was doing um during the summer I was doing some conservation work in Iceland and I saw these yeah it's always beautiful Mm. (laughs) um I saw these like these purple plants and I was like oh what what are these um it was like everywhere so this was like June July time so like peak growing season um and then I like researched it when I came back home and I was like oh these are like invasive plants I said, but it's so pretty and cool and I like really wanted to understand like how they got there like how mm. are these plants so successful and stuff like that so then I did my bachelor's project on them I my was bachelor's project and then I got interested in invasion science and that's what I did my master's in done mm. with plants cool and I've kind of changed slightly with like my PhD uh, but it's still related to plants
1: mm. yeah because your PhD that's in uh, like about grass and draughts, or
4: yeah, so it's it's grasslands, so completely different system. Than I've mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's been really interesting because I didn't really know much about grasslands really, apart from that they looked really pretty, like going on the train across the UK. It's like oh, it's nice and green and stuff, Yeah. Like, and you see sheep. <laughs> and then I, l- I heard a little bit about it in terms of like potential for like carbon storage or something, but I didn't really know them that well so Mm. it's been really interesting to kind of learn more about the importance of grasslands um and in particular like my research focuses on like the effect of drought on grasslands because it often it's often overlooked
1: yeah cool Um,
4: so in general when you think of like uh ecology it tends to be like all the animals kind of get studied the big charismatic um megafauna yeah. and then if if it's not the animals then it's like the, the mega flora to so the trees and then it's like then the grasslands if they do get considered <laughs> <laughs> um so it's like yeah not many people are sort of studying them. It's, um how can i say it? it's becoming more important i think we've
1: grasslands. Mm, maybe it's people realize area. yeah
2: mm. so if, th- do you spend a lot of time outside for your phd or do you have uh field seasons or when yeah when is your time to be out probably yeah, probably so spend, summer
4: right yeah yeah summer yeah. <laughs> so um at my field site the growing season is kind of starts kind of in april and kind of end of september um and that's when we like impose the drought treatment as well mm-hmm. um so yeah i would spend like peak time is kind of like end of may to like end of July um so yeah it's a lot of it's probably how many hours did I spend so I've done most of the data collection now so I think it was I spent 8 let's go there like 8am depending also on weather but um yeah a good 10 hours at least okay um so yeah it's quite um it's quite intense but I love being outside though it's such a beautiful site. um and there's like so my site there's over a hundred species. Um,
2: oh wow! And
4: there's like orchids. There's like um, really cool like legumes. All kinds of colors like pinks, purples. Like, it's just really nice. Like I try not to distract myself from just like sitting and just watching. <laughs> <laughs> and then like seeing the insects and there's lots of different butterflies and dragon, lots of dragonflies as well. Um, just a very nice place to work. Um, and it's just it's fun to do. Um, and, I, yeah, as I say, I kind of describe myself as, like, a plod sociologist. So, like, my, my, the subjects are, like, instead of people, they're plants. Um, and, um, and I have, like, this really sort of, like, intimate connection with, like, these 150 individuals I tagged in 2019. And I go, each year I do my census and I go back to them and I was like, oh, okay, you're still alive this year. Or, like, oh, you've grown a bit. Oh, you've shrunk this year. Or, like, so it's just really nice just, like, following their lives. Each growing
1: season. When you're studying the the draft, like do you do you cover like an area so that the area gets less water and then yeah, sea... so it's
4: um, yeah, so it's like um a a shelter which then has these sort of like gutters like this
3: mm-hmm.
4: um and then it sort of uh, collects about fifty percent of the rainfall and then it goes into like this water butt which then collects and then it's redistributed for like the irrigated plots so -hmm. like that the droughted plots have 50 percent less rainfall and then the irrigated plots have 150 because the 50 that was in the drought then is redistributed to the irrigated yeah and then there's two controls
1: do you feel a bit sad then for like your plants that get less water? Like,
4: well, I'm sorry, you won't have enough water this year. Because I'm stressing them out. And I do yeah. like how they're dealing with that stress. <laughs> I, feel, I do feel kind of bad. And then I've seen some really cool things. So I haven't started like the big analysis yet. I'm just about to start that. But like from the observations, it's really interesting that some of them in the droughted areas have seemed to have like moved. So plants have this ability to like move. Um, mm-hmm so like apart from like the tumbleweeds kind of thing but the ones <laughs> that you would think if they're rooted to the ground it's like oh are they going to um like how are they going to deal with like the stress And so like the grass that I've been following like some of them have moved several centimeters because I've tagged them each year and oh. I'm like I know that's you because there's no other ones around so I made sure that it was obvious like each year that they'd it'd be the same individual
3: yeah
4: um I was like, oh, but you've moved a bit. I know it's you. <laughs> <laughs> so you've moved slightly. So, like, the center, I would take like a sort of area in the center, like, moved slightly. And it's moving towards like the nicer conditions. Oh, so, cool. it can sense like with well, there's roots that, like, oh, there's better, there's um, more water conditions in yeah. this direction. So, I'm going to start moving in that direction.
1: The grass is greener on the other side. I'm going to go over there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, so cool.
4: So, so, it's been super interesting. But yeah, I can't wait to sort of. Analyze it all and see what
2: sort
4: of patterns emerge from the 150 individuals that I started Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's so
1: cool. Super fascinating. (laughs) Geologists are always very fascinated by things that are alive. If we're out in the field (laughs) and someone finds like a bug or (laughs) something, (laughs) that's like the highlight of the day.
4: Yeah, well, I usually think something. The like... you fact about my site is it's on a um, calcareous bed, so it's fossilized coral from like Jurassic, so 160 million years ago.
1: Oh cool! Um,
4: and you can find really cool fossils, um like of coral. Nice. But,
1: like
4: I think it's, like ichthyosmiliosis is cool, but I can't remember what some of the others are. But it's just you can find like big chunks of them.
1: Um, Super cool. Nice.
4: So. Oh. Yeah, it's so the only sort of geology thing I know about myself, <laughs> but it's super interesting because then it affects like the the bed underlying bedrock affects the soil, which then affects the plants because the pH is much higher than it yeah. would be. Um, so I think it's like six point eight. I think some studies have shown. So it's quite a bit higher. Mm. Usually, the kind of um, more acid- on the acidic side. Mm.
0: Um, That's really interesting because uh, I do my field work in uh, Utah. Uh, I'm looking at basically volcanic systems, uh, which are not active today, of course. <laughs> it would be a bit dangerous to look at active ones. But usually where you have these relict uh, volcanic systems, you have a lot of uh, trees and flowers and everything growing on top of the intrusions or the the old magmatic systems. But where it, it's basically just sandstone or just boring sand, there's not much plants actually. It seems huh. like the plants are preferring the yeah, the acidic soil. Cool. So I'm actually using it a bit for finding uh, the things that I wanted to look at. Like if I want to find yeah. something new and volcanic, I just look, uh, oh, there's flowers over there. <laughs> there's probably something nice underneath the soil. Yeah, I can tell you a lot,
4: like um, like when I go on walks and things, is by seeing like which areas, I don't know if it's like a meadow, I can see which areas are like wetter, even though they don't, look currently wet because there's like a, a lot of let's say reed species and ones that are associated with like wetter areas and then I can see like there's a species that don't really like water so much so it's like if I don't want to get my boots too muddy then i probably go to where there's more of the species that don't like the water. <laughs> so it's <very> <laughs> kind of like navigation in that sense um, So yeah I can tell you a lot.
1: Cool. Yeah. But um, yeah besides your research you also have a bunch of other projects
4: you. I do <laughs> probably too many. But <laughs> I just have so many interests; it's so hard. Yeah,
1: yeah. Because you have this um, human nature project, and then you take all of these photographs, uh, and then there's the banana garden project, or yeah. banana garden film. Can yeah, so it's a film project. Yeah. Yeah, is, is that um, something you're working on now, like on the side of your PhD, or is it related?
4: Um, well, kind of the pandemic has just like slowed lots of things down. So it's still mm-hmm. sort of ongoing because we're sort of an independent um, film and pretty much all of us work full time. So it's like when we have time to do it. And the story's also like evolved a lot. So like the, the idea behind the film project is um, to look at the sort of Social, economic, and environmental issues around growing bananas. Um, so we did a kind of like the history of how they've been grown, and then like fast forward to like today, like what the issues are. And bananas are facing their own pandemic. Um, oh no! With this, no. Like, um, yeah, with this um, soil-borne fungus called Tropical Race Four, oh. and it's like wiping out bananas, and it's like spread to um, to Latin America. Uh, in the last couple of years, which is very concerning because they're the largest like exporting region. Yeah.
3: Um,
4: so, like when we first started doing the film, we we went to Costa Rica, and this was before it arrived at Latin America. So we have, um, and I wouldn't say it's like outdated, but we need to like um, revisit those stories because now it's a very different situation that a lot of those countries mm. um, in Latin America have this issue with the fungus. Um, so we're hoping to do a little bit more filming, um, probably when COVID has died down a little bit. Hopefully, um, maybe next year. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the idea. So it's it's an ongoing project. Um,
1: yeah. Well, that's really exciting. Uh, but uh, these films, like where 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 can we watch them? <laughs> <laughs> so we have um,
4: we have like a trailer out, with, like the website. Um, mm-hmm. So it's still being like produced and stuff. But we are on like social media and have our website. I um, okay, Can't cool. the the handle right now, but um, mm. I can share with you. <laughs> yeah, nice.
0: <laughs> we'll post the link with the episode. That's uh, oh, okay. Cool. Yeah.
4: <laughs> so yeah, you can find out more and rewrite blogs and things. Um, so yeah, it was, it was really interesting. Um, sort of interviewing people along the supply chain, from like the growers to Distributors to like scientists working there, so it's really interesting to see from different perspectives um, the issues around bananas.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, we're facing world without bananas. So,
4: that's kind of a, quite a sort of dramatic, sort of, paradigm, <laughs> it is really concerning um, because the banana that we eat is like one variety and it's called a Cavendish, and it's like I think 99% of the bananas we eat are that one variety. Um, and this particular fungus is, um, it's very susceptible to this fungus, the tropical race four. so that could wipe out the sort of commercial banana, but there are thousands of other, I think it's a, I can't remember how many, but a lot, a lot of other varieties that we could use, but, um, yeah, Yeah. so it's happened before in the 1950s, um, with a banana called Big Mike, and, and that was, um wiped out by, I mean, they're still growing in some pockets, but it's not, it's not a commercial banana anymore Mm. um, because of the the fungus, the predecessor to this um, tropical race fall. Yeah.
0: But is it only affecting bananas or can it also affect other type of fruits or is it mainly bananas?
4: I think it's mainly bananas and and plantain as well. Mm. Um, As far as I know,
0: Mm. I'd have to
4: fact check that, but...
2: Because I've heard that uh, those bananas that we eat now are not the one bananas that uh, have have been many years ago or something like that.
4: Yeah, yes, yeah. so that's the one I was referring to, Big Mike in the 1950s. So prior to that, that's what everyone was eating. Um, and it was amazing when we went to Costa Rica with the team and then we were trying out all these other banana varieties. They're so, so tasty. I and mean, then people use them for different types of cooking depending on yeah. what you're making. And it's and they're like different colors, is what's well. amazing. Different sizes and so so tasty. I was <laughs> like, why do we stuck with this one? <laughs> um, so, yeah, part of this film is to show like there are other varieties, and it would be super exciting if we can diversify the different commercial bananas. Yeah, um, and people can taste the amazing variety of bananas.
1: Mm. Yeah, because I've seen like different bananas in supermarkets sometimes, or like when I travel, you see these other types of bananas. But I don't know like how. How to use them or how to eat them?
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because some I know there's like some varieties where it's like if they're black. Black is like when they're not ripe or something. The color is like inverse or something. So I think that's ah. But um, all there's like ones that are like red or something. It's like how do you know when they're ripe? Because we're used to like the green, yellow, and then spotty yellow.
3: You know what I mean?
4: Yeah, <laughs> um, with little black spots. Um. But yeah it's, just, it's just about sort of raising awareness and like um, I guess it's sort of yeah, educating people like how best to use bananas and also to have you can have bananas in different products you can have like dried bananas mm. that necessarily sort of have to be um, like fresh um, yeah there's so many things that you can do with them <laughs>
1: yeah your bananas are great <laughs> <laughs>
0: I really want to see all of these bananas. <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine a red banana, and it's just go like, home
1: and Google bananas. Yeah. I think
4: I've seen it like on the photo,
0: the red one. Yeah.
4: And I think like doing this film has been really eye-opening in the sense, like when I go to the supermarket, I don't think about bananas or other fruits like the same way because I've seen how they they've been grown and they're all hand-picked. You can't mechanize it, uh, the process. Oh wow! Oh. So it's a lot of like hard work.
1: Yeah. Um,
4: and then it was really cool. I was in a train station in Norwich um, in the UK. And I was like, oh, I'm kind of need a snack. So I went and got a banana. And it was like the same sticker or the same location. It was growing that we did the filming. Oh. And I was like, wow, I've like seen where it comes from. <laughs> it was so cool. Because often like with tropical fruit, especially if you live like in Europe, you don't really, you just like kind of take it off the shelf and not think like where it comes from. Yeah. I was like oh, I've seen where that's grew. Really I know crazy. where you live. So it, kind of, <laughs> yeah, it kind of connects like the, the, the girl or the farmer with like the, the consumer at the end. Mm-hmm. like we connected that way, so it was really nice to kind of see that.
1: Yeah yeah, and then you like appreciate it more and mm. oh, that's cool.
2: Yeah. What about the other project? So you have uh, bananas and uh, what about the photo mm, photo project? Oh, the Human Nature Stories yeah. project. Yeah.
4: Yes, yeah, you... so that one's kind of on hold. So I started that one in uh, 80, I can't remember now. Sorry, pandemics like changed dates and stuff. Quite some time ago, <laughs> pre-PhD. Um, oh, yeah, and that was a really interesting one because I've always had this um, interest in like, because I've always had a very strong connection with nature. Uh, even though I grew up in like urban environments and I didn't always like live in places where I lived in like flats, so I didn't always have access to like a garden. Um, so I've always had a very strong connection. I was very interested in understanding differences in other people's connection and relationship to nature. Um, and I really enjoy like photography as well. And I was like, I enjoy kind of listening to people and just seeing different perspectives. So I was like, oh, let me do this um, project. Um, and it's been really, really cool kind of hearing people's stories. And I always said that a really unique thing Um, the story Um, and I decided to use like a board because it's like like, a blank canvas and then people can choose how they um, want to respond whether through pictures or writing or poetry Um, and it's been cool to do it like in different languages and like traveling to different countries and seeing like are there like cultural differences and things like that so I'm trying to get to like 100 so I'm at like 90... 95 or something. has <laughs> um, oh, yeah. made it a bit tricky. Um, but I'd like to get it to, like, to 100 as a nice round number. Yeah. Um, let's see. I don't know if I'll carry it on, but it's been really interesting so far.
2: Mm. So you do really like working with people.
4: Yeah, I do. It's really strange. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like um, maybe
2: yeah, the, the scientists may be viewed as maybe, yeah natural science or whatever. Uh, they view that as uh, people who, you know, work with animals or plants or rocks or they don't really like to interact with people. But yeah, you seem like uh, you are very good at uh, talking with people.
4: Yeah, like, you know, when you say in the introduction, like, what, like, introduce yourself. It's like, I am a scientist, but often, like, scientists... I think it's changing a little bit the kind of interdisciplinary, the importance of like interdisciplinary, but like my mind just works kind of, it doesn't really sort of put things in boxes. It's just I can see parallels from like the human world to like ecology to like for me, it's all kind of one. And I think that's why I have different interests. For me, they're all so like things that I do for like equality and diversity initiatives or like looking at my plants, at climate change, and I do stuff on, like, open science as well. Um, for me, they're all kind of, like, linked. It's very hard to kind of separate them. So that's why I find it really, really challenging when people ask, like, oh, like, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> so I usually just get like, a simple Okay, I'm a plot scientist, but, like, if you want to know the rest, like, let's have a conversation. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, so probably the um, the Black British uh, Biology Project was a, like, natural continu not a continuation, but something that came naturally.
4: Yeah, I would say so. Um, yes, yeah, so that project's currently on pause. But um, yeah, the idea behind it was um, to... Okay, so I kind of felt sort of like growing up, I think as I said, I was always interested in sort of nature and sort of science, but I never really had any role models. And to some extent, I don't really have any today because um, it can be quite a lonely experience being a, a Black uh, female scientist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, is also disabled and you're Um so I wanted to create this project, kind of also, I guess, for my like to help my younger self, like to see like there are um, amazing contributions that have been erased through centuries um, of the uh, Black natural historians or scientists. Um, so that's the idea behind the project, or if if sort of black people are in the media sometimes it's very um sort of twisted and and the the narrative or it's like very negative and i I wanted to do something Mm. constructive and positive and show like the these contributions that um black british biologists have made um and i'm also really interested in like history as well so it's another one of my sort of interests um so yeah so that's kind of behind that um and to also Hmm. use it as like um the idea is to make it um well, I build the website eventually <laughs> um <laughs> to make it like an open resource for like educators yeah so, like use that content for like lectures or in schools or something like mm. that Yeah,
2: that's um, great. at least yeah. on your website sorry <laughs> you say that you go and uh, so you are a teacher assistant and uh, you do lectures and could you tell us about that part of your life
4: Oh yeah, the teachers. Uh, that's, so I used to work in schools in between like my degrees and things, and that was really fun because um, I like working with children as well. They just come up with like amazing questions, and they're just like curious and like they want to absorb so much. They're like, little sponges. Um, <laughs> so I enjoyed um, also like running gardening clubs with them, so like plants again, um, and like science club as well. So that was really fun. Cool.
1: Then um, so you can be their role model.
4: And you can be what, sorry?
1: Then you are their role model.
4: Um, Oh, yeah, possibly. I didn't really think of that. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, that's true. Mm. Um,
0: But what is the science club? Was that what you said it was? The science club? Did you say science club? The science club. club. Yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. I used to do, like, a little science club with them. Um, So we do, like, little experiments, like, making... um, uh, like goo out of like cornstarch and water and like food dye. Oh, yeah. Um, fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or oh, would make like, because um, science has got to be messy. It's fun. That's kind of like a way that you kind of learn. So, and they're not really like, because especially like schools now, they're very like, they don't tend to do as many experiments or like messy things. Um, so I was like, let's do all the messy stuff. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we did like um, build bridges out of spaghetti and marshmallows and then put weights on them and see who could build the strongest bridge. Um, so that was fun. What else did we do? Yeah, stuff was just sort of like growing plants as well. Um, those are the two that kind of stick in my he- in my head. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> that was re- and they loved it. so It was like once a week. Um, we did that, um, and they would like they'd go back home and they'd like, say the next day, like, "What are we doing next week?" <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. Because um, yeah. often, like. And um, so this is like in primary school, so they're like younger children. Um, there's not many like science specialist teachers, um, or not maybe as confident to kind of do all these kind of experiments and things. So for me, it was really fun to kind of because I really enjoy science and I enjoy working with children. So I was like, I can combine those things. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the teachers are very grateful as well for that um, to have like a, an actual scientist. So. Yeah. Do things with them.
0: I guess they get really inspired as well, so they might uh, become scientists when they're gr- growing up as well. Because Maybe. They, yeah,
4: they're... I'd love to keep in touch with some of them. I don't know if they've like moved around or something, because this was quite some time ago.
1: But... Yeah, cause, like coming back yeah. to role models, it is really important to have role models to look up to that like look like you and that you can like see yourself becoming. We talked a bit about this in uh, the previous episodes where you talked about gender equality. And, um, oh, you
4: broke up a tiny bit. Sorry, I didn't get a little
1: bit. I'm sorry. We have discussed this a bit in some of our earlier episodes um, about having role models, and especially in the gender equality episode, because there's not that many like female professors, for example. Mm-hmm. So it's really important to get that balanced, because you need someone to look up to who like looks like you, so you understand that oh, I can also be a professor or whatever.
4: I think that's so so important. Yeah, having that. Um, I think quite a lot of the stuff that I do now is like for my younger self and other others like me. I think mm. <laughs> So I wish I had that. Um, and especially like in the UK, there's not many black like, professors. I think. Especially black women. I think there's 35 black women professors that might have changed slightly. In total? And I... Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, I can't remember what it is like total for
2: sort of black um, I think uh, it was professors. 10, I think it was 10% in, uh, or something like that. At least I remember this infographics uh, was going uh,
4: viral on Twitter and it was kind of sad. Yeah. So I don't know... I've been trying to look for like scientists, black female scientists in the UK
3: Mm.
4: in like biological sciences. And I don't know if there are some, I've been trying to find some, (laughs) 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 but I'm I'm yet to meet someone that's like, like me. Yeah. But I must say like things like um, black botanist week or like black and marine science or black, black birders Week, all those sort of things have been absolutely amazing. Like Mm. to meet others, that are really passionate about, and in the case of like Black Bottom this week, into plants and things um, from all over the world. So that's been right. Yeah. Um, but I haven't met, so because you have this issue in like academia, it's often called like the leaky pipeline. Although there's kind of the narrative's kind of changing around that because it's kind of sounds like quite a passive process, but it's there's a lot of barriers in place. And then there was a paper that came out not long ago, which was talking about the hostile obstacle course <laughs> which mm-hmm. I think it's much more sort of accurate um that, that the further up you go kind of academia, the less people you see like so I've noticed like from especially uh, so my background as I said it was environmental sciences I think I was like the only black woman there was like one other black man in the whole there's like a few hundred of us doing similar degrees um in master's maybe one other black woman
3: yeah
4: and then like phd i think i'm the only, yeah, only one in my cohort i don't even know like it's through several years yeah i don't think yeah, i've met someone who's like especially into plants as well because that's a that's not very diverse um field mm. so it is quite challenging oh. So yeah, it's important to have role models. I think also. So yeah, for the like little kids, I think it's it's really important to have um, role models that are kind of this sort of career stage. But I think it's also really important to have ones that are like professors and like faculty members mm. and things, to show that it is possible.
1: Yeah, because um, so I'm still searching. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if there's anyone out there, let us know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because it's often like it's... the people at like the top that you see in in the media, and that's the one you once you notice most easily, maybe. So it's yeah, important well, like, to
4: have. Go... The... Oh,
1: sorry. Yeah, and I was just gonna say. So it's important to have diversity, like all the way from from the top and down. It doesn't help to just have it on the bottom line.
4: No! 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 <laughs> Yeah, and you notice that like at conferences or like seminar talks, it's like, oh, it's just kind of me.
0: <laughs> and yeah. it kind of,
4: that's when like the um, sort of imposter syndrome kind of kicks in. It's like, oh, do I like here? in the sense of kind of mm. belonging and, and that. So it can be quite a tricky space to to navigate.
1: Yeah. Yeah, what do you find the most challenging or, yeah, to be like so alone
4: I would say that's probably one of the main challenges. Um, yeah. And also, the sort of various intersecting parts of my identity. So, like, I'm black, and then so black mix So, I have privilege in the sense that I'm not as darker skinned as other people and face many more prejudices. Prejudices. Um. Hmm. So I have that, but also I'm like a woman, and also like disabled, and neurodivergent. So there's like multiple things that make it very challenging. Um, mm. so there's, there's sometimes where I'm like oh I know I'm being discriminated against but I'm not sure which part of me is or what combination of, of me is being um, of my identities is being discriminated against so it is tricky it's hard to kind of um, extract which part it is because um, mm. often like discrimination is not um, so what's the word overt or like in your face it's like little kind of things and you're trying to work out like oh is it this is it not yeah so it can be quite tricky
1: yeah yeah look small things um and with the disability dis- disability is that yeah. what it's called disability mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. That's correctly pronounced <laughs> 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 with this like invisible disability like often if you in my in my head like if i say like disabled that pops up like a wheelchair this wheelchair is signed, because that's like the disabled sign, right? So mm, if you don't like see, you the see the wheelchair, or other yeah, yeah mm. you don't you don't think about it. Or I guess that's um, part of the problem. It's like this yeah, yeah. invisible I think, a, I think that's
4: another reason why I'm quite open about sort of my disabilities and neurodivergence like on Twitter or other places or write about it. Mm. Um, just to kind of raise awareness and say like, you may not see us, but we're here.
1: Yeah, Um, I think that's super important.
4: Yeah, yeah. So, like, um, in in my case, like, um, being like autistic, I like, I'm doing it less now, but like masking, which is like almost like putting on, like a character to kind of fit into neurotypical society.
3: Mm. So
4: it's like one of that, and then like, there's also then that blends in with being sort of a, a black person as well. So it's like. You have to like double mask, and then obviously, with the pandemic, we've all been wearing masks. So, like, sometimes say, like, Oh, I'm triple masked today, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, so there's, there's that, so that uh, I may not come across as disabled, but I'm like working really hard to try and like fit in and stuff. So, I'm doing it less now because it's, it's so energy intensive. Um, and I don't think people really kind of realize that. Um, because academia is it's very, um what's the word, kind of performance-driven and very like competitive
3: Mm. and doesn't
4: always, um, it's not an easy place to be disabled and neurodivergent, Um, which is a shame because like academia should be places which are where sort of disabled and neurodivergent people should thrive. Um, We have different perspectives Mm. often for like neurodivergent people, very like sort of holistic thinkers very good observation skills and kind of like pattern recognition, all those sort of things, which you kind of, you kind of need those in teams. We um, yeah. need a variety of, you know, perspectives and and things. Um, so yes, yeah, it can be tricky when there's a lot of sort of barriers in place.
1: Mm. Yeah, definitely.
2: Okay, I'm, I'm now I could be a bit of a toxic positivity uh, uh, person but so do you think your disability somehow uh, helped you or I don't know do you think it could be a disability a strength or maybe it's a stupid question I would
4: just be um
2: do, do you find this strength like do you if or it could it, be a strength like in certain yeah. situations or, or maybe maybe I'll rephrase it and uh, do you feel better if your disabilities are diagnosed
4: oh I see Di- yeah so diagnosis definitely helps um so in the case I guess I'll separate like the neurodivergence and the disability because I also have like an autoimmune condition um but in terms of, like the neurodivergent stuff um so I'm like autistic ADHD and I have dyslexia and I all I got uh, diagnosed as an, as an adult so um well, I was told that the various. Um, uh, assessments is like, oh, you've had like lots of coping mechanisms and you've tried different things and you've kind of, um, what's the word, kind of found your own way of dealing with things. Um, but it's definitely helpful to have kind of the label. Some people don't like it's very personal, I kind of think, but I find it helpful to have the label and to learn more about myself and how my brain works. Um, but it can be very, very challenging and it has been challenging for me to get a diagnosis. Um, Especially in the UK, like waiting times are so long. So I was lucky with my autism assessment; it took only five months, um, which is really quick. Some there, some people waiting three, four years, which is really, really unfair. Yeah, um, that's long. With yeah. my ADHD assessment, I got um, so I've known for like two years or so, um, and I was happy with kind of like self-diagnosis kind of label. Um, and I was like, oh, I don't really need to get like a formal diagnosis. I'm okay. I can sort of manage. But then I realized like I was trying lots of different um, things. So I struggle a little bit with sort of like time management. Um, thing, yeah, things that are important for like a PhD. You need know, good time management um, and try not to get sort of distracted by things. Um, I was like trying all these different like apps and things and courses. And I was like, I'm still struggling. I was like, oh, I think I might need to pursue a formal diagnosis in order to get like ADHD treatment, which is like medication. But there's a huge barrier in place because if you go on the, so in the UK with the NHS, you have to wait years. Mm. And I was like, I need to get this PhD done. (laughs) I've tried (laughs) so many other things. So I had to go, unfortunately, I had to do it privately. And that cost um, more than my PhD, one month of my PhD salary. So that involved me having to take on extra like work. So I have a part-time job as well Um, and do maybe like extra teaching and things like that. To, to do that so it's like I've taken time away from my PhD to try and finish my PhD in order to get like treatment. <laughs> um so that was like so I had to wait five months for that so it was like quick do it quick relatively quick um so I got um my official diagnosis like a few weeks ago and I started treatment as of yesterday oh, wow. um and it's been amazing so far but it's yeah. like there's huge financial barriers and it's really not fair um <laughs> I've had to spend yeah, so much, but I have to pay for the treatment myself and consultations, which is like several hundred pounds. Mm. And I was like, I see it as like investing in myself, but like it's, it's draining my sort of finances. So yeah. I would say in terms of like circling back in terms of like barriers and things, if we can create academic spaces, which are inclusive from like the get-go. So I'm talking about like the physical spaces, like how the office space is. Like can you adjust the lighting? Can you adjust the temperature? Are there quiet spaces? Things like that. Um, or how instructions are given like clear headings things like that font types of fonts color overlays a lot of sort of things that you can do and also I forgot what my other thing was so yeah that's how my brain went kind of goes like (laughs) (laughs) I need to think about what the other thing was um oh yeah yeah so making it like inclusive from the get-go and using this kind of like universal design for learning Mm -hmm. to like make things accessible and inclusive from the get-go and then you're more likely to, the neurodivergent people and disabled people, you're more likely to have, more less likely to have issues, and will be able to thrive. Yeah. Um, so, and that's kind of talking about if you go kind of in the disability literature, like the social model versus the medical model of disability. Um, There's like sort of pros and cons of both, but for me personally, I feel for my neurodivergent conditions, the majority of the issues I'm having, kind of fall into the kind of the environment around me is disabling so it's kind of the social model of disability so if there's things mm-hmm. that could be made more accessible as I was saying like physical space or how um courses are designed
3: mm-hmm. to make that
4: more accessible then it would make things easier for people like me <laughs> yeah um so yeah so it's, it's been a struggle to get my sort of diagnosis um so first it was the dyslexia then the autism and then the adhd
2: so it's kind of that order. Um. So, uh, So you felt like something wrong or something really get uh, something difficult, and then you are like, okay, I need to go to the, to see my doctor. How how yeah, so, how did um, how, how was the, um, uh, how did you get started? I guess.
4: Yeah. So for the um, dyslexia, that was um, towards the end of my bachelor's degree, um. Was it towards the end? Yeah? No, sorry, halfway halfway through. Kind of towards the beginning. Sorry, completely messed up. <laughs> towards the beginning. Uh, I think I did like one year and I was like, oh, I'm struggling a bit with kind of like writing and like the letters are all kind of jumbled up and things. And then like my friend was talking about it. I was like, oh, there's this thing called dyslexia. I was like, oh, maybe I should look into it. So then I kind of like read up on it. I was like, oh, I think that's me because I struggle with a lot of these things. Um, and just like very being very slow at writing. Um, so then I then went to the disability service at my university and then had a chat with the disability advisor and they said, "Oh um, well, yeah, it sounds like you are having those sort of difficulties. Let's put you through to like, a diagnosis. Um, so I had to pay for that. But it wasn't as much as my ADHD assessment. Um, but then I managed to get some funding for like um, through like disability allowance for like printing materials which is really helpful. So, like, reading papers and things, I find it really hard to read on a screen. So, Mm -hmm. I, like, if it's a good paper, I know I'm going to get lots out of it. I will print it off. Um, It's much more accessible. So, I can, like, annotate it and and do things like that. So, yeah, that's how that one worked. And then once I realized that I wasn't, like, stupid, um, because I said sort of at the beginning that I left school with not very good grades Mm because I I messed up the exams, Um, because that's, like, pretty much 100% of the your final grade is like a couple of exams and like that. It's not very mm-hmm.
3: good for
4: people yeah. like me so I'm much better at like coursework um and then I realized like I kind of looked back on my life I was like oh that's why I'm finding it like I found it difficult in like school I was like still really trying I was it wasn't a question of like effort or like intelligence it was just things weren't very accessible and I was like struggling mm-hmm. um because school and like university is kind of designed for neurotypical people um So, yes, that's how that happened with the dyslexia. And and then it really improved my confidence. And I was like, oh, I'm not stupid. I just think differently and I do things differently. And then, like, after that, my grades just, like, shot up. Um, And I managed to get, like, a first-class degree. I was, like, top in my class after that. So that was, like, really life-changing. So, yeah, then then I got the confidence to then do, like, my master's. And I was like, okay. Okay. and then I was like, oh, yeah, I really like doing research. I was like, I'll give a PhD a go. Um, and then like, PhD is very different from like uh, bachelors and masters when they're more structured. And then I was like, oh, I'm having some difficulties. Here. <laughs> um, <laughs> you kind of, that's what tends to happen with like um, especially late diagnosed um, neurodivergent people. Um you kind of get to the point where you get almost like burnt out and it's like i trying everything and it's like you know kind of like a swan looks very graceful and people are kind of seeing that but like underneath you're just like <gasps> you're like scrambling <laughs> yeah. to try and like maintain and look like everything's okay but it's really not um so then things kind of I was finding it really difficult kind of in the department where it was an open plant office um and there was like 30 people sometimes and there'd be like noise um Different smells, the lighting was horrible. Um and then there was like drilling outside, there was like near a window. Um and just like the chair was not com- like everything was just like not okay. Because mm-hmm. up until that I did I did like different jobs and things, but I'd never worked in an open plant office. Uh, as I said before, I was like in school, so I was like constantly moving and there's a different environment. And I was like, I'm really struggling to like work, and I'm seeing everyone just like really serious, like for like hours and I was like, I'm really struggling here. I'm like moving around my chair. I'm just like can't concentrate. <laughs> um so I was like, oh this is interesting. And then there's someone else um who was talking to me about um autism or something and about sensory sensitivities I was like, Oh this is very interesting. I was like, oh yeah I have sensory sensitivities like to the noise and I'm struggling to kind of work. Um so then I just did the really autistic thing to like became a special interest and I just like read loads about it and then Mm -hmm. went on YouTube and then I was like oh there's other things as well like there's communication issues um or like not understanding things or like taking things literally or or yeah those sort of things I was like oh this really does feel like me but then there's like a lot of things on like YouTube that were mostly aimed at kind of like white men I was like I didn't quite fit Mm -hmm. that but it was like some things that like um, some women on like YouTube or articles that were being written I was like about masking and I was like oh that's what I'm doing but I and then I was like is that like and then I went through a mini existential crisis and then trying to work out like what was like the real me so this is the while I'm doing my PhD which is like if PhD is challenging in itself and then having Mm -hmm. a little existential crisis in between is not ideal. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, so like, um, yeah, so then I yeah, went to the disability um, uh, officer and said like, oh, I think I'm autistic and you can you advise me and like, hello, pursue a diagnosis. Um, and then I got put through, so I managed to get that through the NHS so I didn't have to pay for that assessment. Um, and that was like quite intense because there's like several hours of assessment they ask you so many questions there's so many forms you have to fill in mm-hmm. um and then they told me like three weeks later yes yeah, so it was like during the summer was it 2021 no twenty 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 twenty. sorry and um, i was doing field work and then i got the call and i was like whoa i'm not surprised <laughs> that, was very, that was very um helpful sort of to have that label and then I've i've learned so much about myself like mm-hmm kind of each week there's like new things that pop up like
1: and different. then like the
4: ADHD so at the same time I was like oh I was reading about sort of ADHD and neurodiversity in general um and neurodivergent conditions I was like oh but there's like some things that don't quite explain are not fully like autistic um and I like to explain to people like being autistic and having ADHD is like having an old mar- married couple in your head and they're like arguing So like the autistic side of me is like more introverted and like likes routine and like sameness, and then like the ADHD part of me is like really extroverted, and likes a bit of chaos and just like new things and all that kind of and like people and talking to people and that kind of stuff. So it's like a it's like kind of hard to um, to satisfy both. (laughs) (laughs) So it's organized chaos in my head. Um, Um, so yeah, as I was saying that like, before, yeah, the ADHD, I'd like self-diagnosed for like two years, and then I was like, I need um, to take medication because it, it was getting really hard.
1: Because
4: mm. um, it's, yeah, the squirrel brains.
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but then the pieces like started to like fall together then when you got the diagnosis.
4: Oh yeah, it's very helpful. Yeah, yeah. So each one has been, I've learned like more about mm. myself. Um Yeah really interesting to kind of learn more about yourself and then it also makes sense like reflecting on like the types of projects that I've chosen so Mm -hmm. like I find it really hard to sit still so as I was saying you asked me about my hobbies I like to do things that are active with my hands and I've realized I made choices without realizing that would kind of work to kind of my strengths and what I feel comfortable with so I chose a well I designed sort of my PhD project to for it to be like outside and doing field work and doing things with my hands and doing some lab work Mm -hmm. um so yeah, so I'm not sure why I said that. sorry. <laughs> just yeah, no, that's, that's use- it's useful.
1: useful. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> but but you feel like these things, uh, knowing these things about yourself, that it kind of gives you uh, confidence.
4: Yeah, I think so. Um, and just knowing, like, because I, I said I've been trying to like mask less because it was so energy intensive, and just like being more authentically myself. Um, and I've noticed like being open about. I guess my sort of journey Um, lots of people have like contacted me or like DM'd me on Twitter and like just saying oh thank you for being like so open like I've also started pursuing a diagnosis and I was like that's amazing for you you can start your journey and like understand yourself more and not um, kind of have that also almost like also internalized ableism and like being mean to yourself and like saying you're stupid and all that because a lot of neurodivergent people have really poor mental health. Because it's really hard to if you don't know why you're finding things difficult, and like everyone seems to be um, managing. I mean, life is hard for everyone, but like society and sort of academia as well is built for like neurotypical able-bodied people. So if you don't fit out, if you fit, if you fit, if you don't fit in that model, then it can be really tricky having kind of navigating those spaces. So like it's it's really good if people can sort of understand themselves um, better. Mm-hmm. Um, and be... I mean, it's hard. It takes, yeah, time and you kind of go through the kind of maybe, like, denial process. Some people might go through that uh, or maybe, like, anger or... I think for me, I kind of wish I was diagnosed as a child. It would have really, like, helped. <laughs> yeah. um, I would have got, like, a more time on exams, but I think my path would be completely different. Mm. I don't know if I would be... So it's really hard, you know, to kind of... Um, you kind of wish you do in the sense you don't um like making up for lost time kind of stuff i don't know yeah it's just yeah it's an interesting yeah journey and i think what's interesting sorry in oh, no. like academia that there's probably a lot of undiagnosed neurodivergent people because in hmm. the general population is about like one in
3: five
4: oh, wow. and i'm sure like in sciences academia even say like probably quite a lot in like geology if it's like a lot of categorizing rocks and that kind of systematic things (laughs) you tend to find a lot of neurodivergent people there um but they might like not know it um so that's another reason why it's important to create they create inclusive spaces so Mm. um it could be more help people you know thrive
2: yeah Yeah, i was just telling uh, since Wilde and uh, martin they are my friends they probably know so that uh, I was writing my thesis, and like somehow I managed to also read about the dyslexia, and I was like self-diagnosed that okay, I think it, this this is this fits me very well, and uh, and I thought you know I usually think oh, I'm just you know I'm have uh, sometimes I have hard times to formulate my thoughts or. You might probably noticed, and uh, you know, like I thought maybe I'm stupid and stuff. But then when I read about dyslexia and some pieces also fell into some puzzle or picture, and I'm like, you know what? I'm not stupid. I'm just might be I might have like some mild uh, version of dyslexia, and it it felt very good because yeah, I don't know. It just that gave me so much peace. (laughs) I don't know. and uh I was like yeah okay i'm not stupid <laughs> I'm
3: yeah, just, yeah yeah
2: this is my this is just my something that i have and whatever so this is i, I think i yeah, also yeah, need yeah. to go through like maybe to go through like official diagnosis and stuff and stuff but um, i don't know self-diagnosis also was worked for me as well
4: yeah, yeah and i think it's it's totally valid i know there's can be quite a lot of gatekeeping where people say like, oh no, you already have to have a formal diagnosis. But people may not realize like as I explained the financial barriers to getting a diagnosis are huge. Um Mm. so I'm all for self diagnosis. Um so yeah. But you said you have to make it easier.
1: Yeah. You said you have a disabled center at your university. Oh yeah. That's cool. Cool. That's um... amazing. Do we have I don't know. Uh...
4: I don't, I don't think know. we
1: have a specified, like, disability Yeah, I think like most universities
4: center. in the UK should have, like, a, they might be called different things, like, Disability Centre or Advisory Service or mm. something mm. like that. Um, so, yeah, they can be really helpful people to talk to. Yeah. I think, for me, what I found a really great community, like, online and just speaking to other neurodivergent people and just, like, it's just, it's just great because <laughs> sometimes <laughs> it can be quite tiring talking to like neurotypical people because like our brains just work really differently. Yeah. Um, and they can, yeah, can be more tiring. So sometimes it's nice just to hang out with like neurodivergent people where it's just like, there's kind of this connection. You kind of get the, the thought process and like, there's probably a lot of interruptions and things like that, but like, it just kind of like works. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's much less energy intensive. Um, and for me, what's really interesting also is that I can, since, like, getting my diagnosis, I can spot neurodivergent people generally quite quickly. Oh, like, I get little vibes. Oh, cool. <laughs> you got like, these <laughs> raiders.
3: <laughs>
4: it's just something, kind of, like, the mannerisms or, like, how people use their hands or, like, the choice of words that they use or, like, the kind of things that they say. Yeah. Can usually tell.
2: Cool. Yeah. Okay, well, what kind of advice would you give your younger version of yourself? The one that starts the PhD
4: oh okay i haven't done that kind of thinking yet because i'm generally quite an introspective person but i haven't done that thinking yet but let's see if i can think of something um (laughs) on the spot um believe in yourself and kind of like trust yourself and like sounds really cheesy but like be yourself like no matter what like stick to your kind of what feels right, your principles and like your values, and try not to, for them to be compromised because it can be really tricky. Like masking, you kind of lose your sense of identity because um, you're trying to fit in, and you might kind of yeah not recognise who you are. So just be yourself. And there will people, there will be people that dislike you. You will have you'll have a tricky time, but I think you'll spend a lot less energy trying to like yeah mask and not try and fit in to so just be just be you <laughs> you be you which is easier said than done because there's there's some places where i feel like i can't like fully unmask mm. um so it can be tricky but on the whole i think it it's quite liberating yeah like just being your authentic self and then it's good if we think of like it's even purely the like productivity sense like happier more authentic people who come to work or like produce more And will work probably better in teams if they can be more themselves. Mm -hmm. So it's a win win. Yes.
0: I think that was great advice, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing.
4: I haven't really, like, yeah, thought about that, like, what I would say to myself starting September 2018. Um, Because I've really changed as a person. Um, And yeah, I should maybe do some journaling on that. Thanks for that.
1: Write it down now and then see what you think again in like (laughs) five years. See if it (laughs) helps. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions or stories you would like to share, please send us an email at phdrapsody at gmail.com.
0: Yes, and please follow us on social media such as Twitter and Instagram. Bye. Bye
2: Bye-bye. Bye-bye.